So thanks for being here today. Um, last week I told Brent I, I had started to write a message on something completely different than what I'm going to speak about today. And uh, as is often the case with me, God kind of kicks me around for a few days and um, in a loving way. <laughs> and uh, woke me up in the middle of the night twice. Like I don't wake up in the middle of the night uh, yet unless it's to use the bathroom, which is not that often. And that's more than you wanted to know. But I... I uh, I got woke up in the middle of the night twice, Tuesday night, and, and, and the Tuesday night I wake up and, and it's like, uh, hey, um, Kirk, like I didn't hear an audible voice, but I, I, I want you to speak on prayer. And I, I had, I, I did, I laughed. <laughs> yeah, me, speak on prayer. Mr. Do things in the power of my own strength is gonna talk to the church about trusting God and relying on God in prayer. Okay, uh, so I went back to sleep and, and I woke up the next night and, and he gave me a story, reminded me of a story that I heard years ago about a man, a family that had to trust God deeply uh, in their faith and in prayer as they dealt with tragedy. So I was like, okay, two nights in a row, we're done. And Brent said the next night God was gonna wake me up and tell me I had to pray for somebody and that didn't happen. But so nonetheless, today we're gonna talk about prayer. Before we get there, 30 years ago or so, uh, emphasis on the so, I was in middle school and I had a teacher named Mr. Rice who was my history teacher for two years while I was in grade seven and eight. And he awoke in me this love of history like I had never experienced before. History had always been boring and rote to me. But when I had Mr. Rice as a teacher, he stirred this love in me. And so ever since then, I love to read on historical events and people. And last summer, I read two books. I did what everybody does on vacation. I read two, two books on uh, the invasion of Normandy on D-Day, which if you're a history buff like me, was 73 years ago, a week from this Tuesday, uh, the invasion of Normandy. And so one of the things I discovered while I was reading was, was how these generals, and I knew this philosophically most of my life, but one of the things I discovered was how guys like Canada's Harry Creer, General Harry Creer, and Britain's uh, uh, Mon uh, Montgomery, Bernard Montgomery, or the US's Omar Bradley, how these men came together, these generals, and they built the largest multinational force ever assembled, and they invaded the shores of Europe with these men. And the reason they did is they were given this massive task of eradicating Europe, uh, the, the Western European countries, formerly peaceful European countries, of uh, the oppressive and invading Germans. And they named this operation, Operation Overlord. And it was incredibly complex uh, because it involved, like I said, a multinational force, people who didn't necessarily speak the same language, people who came from different command structures, men from all over the world, nurses and women from all over the world serving to free Europe from the Germans. And the thing that was intricate about it was they had to depend on a series of successive victories in order to deliver a crippling blow to the Germans that would first surprise them, then wear them down, and eventually, it was hoped, force them into full retreat. Only then, it was believed, would Hitler's capacity to maintain and to continue to wage offensive war be sufficiently impaired that the Allies could march towards victory. By early December, the Allies had successfully pushed the Germans back over 300 kilometers from some towns on the French coast. But in order to continue their advance, you notice I said it was December, they needed to have a prolonged period of good weather. They needed the weather to last to hold out a little bit longer. This led US General George Patton to contact his personal chaplain, a man named Colonel James O'Neill. The two men sat and they devised a plan together to place on an index card, a three by five index card on one side, I think it'll be on the screen behind me, on one side 
uh, Patton's personal greeting to his, to his command, to his soldiers. And on the other side, a prayer uh, that invited each soldier all the way from privates to top commanders to pray, Patton style, invited. To, uh, if you've ever seen the movie with George C. Scott Patton, I say invited tongue in cheek, more like a command, hey, you will pray. And so each man did, they prayed. They prayed for good weather. I don't know if they all did, but uh, the sad thing was, or the, the difficult thing was eight days later, eight days after that prayer was delivered across his command in the Ardennes forest, a thick forested region of Northern France, Luxembourg, Berg, and Belgium, Hitler ordered an offensive that caught Patton's army, listen to this, Patton's army, just George Patton, of over 600,000 men off guard, one army. Third U.S. Army. The battle lasted for 40 days. It was later named the Battle of the Bulge or the Battle of the Ardennes Forest. And while Canadians and British troops did contribute uh, importantly, significantly to the counteroffensive and the counterattacks and the retaking of lost ground, it was George Patton's U.S. Third Army that bore the brunt of the casualties in that offensive. They suffered almost 90,000 total casualties, including uh, just north of 24,000 taken prisoner and more than 19,000 killed in action. It was their worst single battlefield loss of the entire war. And what complicated it further for them, what complicated their ability to stabilize the line was weather. The very thing that they had prayed and asked God for favor in. It was weather, it was days and weeks of what Patton called uh, immoderate rain, heavy rain. Befuddled as to how this could possibly be after having solicited prayers from God and after having mobilized an army of men to be praying, Patton then wrote out another prayer and he went to a small church in Luxembourg City and history records that on the 23rd of December, 1944, George Patton entered a tiny Catholic church alone and he read the following aloud. Sir, this is Patton talking. It's a good thing he introduced himself. The past 14 days have been straight hell. Rain, snow, more rain, more snow, and I'm beginning to wonder what's going on in your headquarters. Whose side are you on anyway? <laughs> he goes on for three more pages like that. I'll save you the details, but he ends with this. Sir, I can't help but feel with this weather hampering us so badly that I have somehow offended you, that suddenly you have lost all sympathy for our cause. I've sent one of my best generals to the front, but he's finding your weather more difficult than he is the Germans. You have just got to make up your mind whose side you are on. You must come to my assistance, sir. You love how a general refers to the Lord as sir, right? It's awesome. I wonder if he was at attention when he was saying this. So that I can dispatch the entire German army as a birthday present to the Prince of Peace. Give me four days so that my planes can fly, so that my fighter bombers can bomb and strafe, artillery can find targets, tanks can roll, and ammunition and rations can reach my hungry men. Give me good weather, and I'll deliver enough Germans to keep your bookkeepers months behind in their work. Amen. <laughs> now, if you don't believe me, Google the patent prayer. That's verbatim. Now, Given the destruction that's going on all around this man, the loss of life, the massive casualties, we can probably understand why he prayed, right? We would pray. There's an old saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. Uh, we can probably understand why he encouraged others to pray, and we can probably forgive Patton for his mildly irreverent tone. Uh, it's, it's partially understandable. Now, this is what I like about it. Patton is not concerned about himself. He's not praying about his next promotion, another star to occupy his already crowded collar. 
He's not worried about what Time Magazine and the newspapers and the media reels are saying about him in American theaters at home on a weekly basis. He's not concerned about any of that. What he's concerned about is the ongoing slaughter of youth. And so he prayed. He prayed and he begged for the Lord's intervention on their behalf, uh, believing that the only way to stop the evil of the Nazis was for God to will it and for God to act. It was the only way it was gonna happen. Now, for you and me, thankfully, none of us have ever faced that kind of death and destruction, nor been responsible for hundreds of thousands of lives. Uh, Our World War II veterans are are passing away at a rate of about 100 a day, and so there are fewer and fewer of them around to tell us the stories of what this was like, what it was like to live through that time. But nobody in this room likely has borne the responsibility that Patton bore. But if we live long enough, the chances are good that on some version, some scale, that we will endure our own seemingly hopeless situation at some point in life if we live long enough. And no doubt, we will similarly, like Patton, we will, we will cry out for help to God. We will, we will call to God in hope. We will, we will talk to God about our fear. We may come before the Lord and we may talk about how it, we're hurt. We may even express frustration. We may even get to the point where we feel like we've talked to God so much about this that we've hit the tipping point and we become angry and maybe even angry towards God. The Bible, would it surprise you to know that the Bible contains some such prayers, many of them written by, in the Psalms, some of them by David. Uh, here's an example from Psalm 44. It says this, verse 23. Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and our oppression? Makes me wonder if Patton read Psalm 44 before he wrote his letter. We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up, help us, redeem us because of your unfailing love. You ever uttered, a desperate prayer like that? What about a, an angry prayer? You ever been angry at God? Maybe, not, maybe you wouldn't characterize it as a prayer. Maybe it was just something you blurted out at God how you were angry at him. You ever faced a situation like that? What about this? What about, do, do you ever notice how, how your prayer life sort of ramps up in the face of adversity? Like when, when things are dropping all around you you, 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 you lean into prayer more. Have you ever noticed that when things are tough, you pray more? Have you ever noticed that when, when the weather's smooth and the winds are in your favor, have you ever noticed that you, you, you tend to rely more on yourself and you tend to pray less? Now, I don't know about you, but I have to confess that there are times in my life, in my faith walk with God, when I have only called on him when things were truly difficult, when they hit what I would call sort of the difficulty level on my ability to manage meter. Perhaps you can relate. Or maybe, maybe you're not like me at all. Maybe, uh, your, maybe prayers come uh, frequently, fluidly for you. Maybe prayer is where you live. The Apostle Paul was one who uh, lived out a visible dependence on prayer. And if you know his story, then you know why. Uh, persecuted, beaten, um, chased all over the Middle East, stoned, it's understandable why, why one such as Paul would rely on prayer. In Philippians chapter four, he delivers this in verse six and seven. He says this, and he knew the power of these words. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now listen to this. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious about anything, brothers, sisters. 
present your request to God. And when you do, the peace of God, which surpasses all of your ability to understand, he will give to you to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I wonder if our lives are noticeably peaceful, if our ministries are personal ministries and our collaborative ministries. I wonder if they're sustained by this constant reliance on God as we continually come before him together and alone in prayer. I wonder, uh, to put it another way, if, if prayer is the engine that we rely on to call the power of God into our lives and our families and our finances and our ministries. I wonder. I wonder if prayer is central to our walk with him, if it's a cornerstone, or if it's more peripheral, something that we utilize on a lesser basis, something that we, we don't depend on as often in our approach to life in Christ, I wonder. And the most of the reason I wonder these things is because I, I ask myself these things frequently. Do I really believe that he who has the power to raise the dead, that he who has the power to call Christ back to life, that he who gave Christ the power to raise Lazarus, do I really believe that he's for me, that he wants to will and to act in my life? And if I will call on his name, and ask him that he will. Do I really believe that? And so with those questions in mind, I want us to look at three considerations that I think can help us centralize prayer in our lives. It's not too late. Whether you're two or 72 or 92, it's not too late to start talking to your heavenly father. Prayer in the New Testament, number one, is both a private and a public practice. Uh, when visible, when it's shared in public spheres, prayer displays our dependence on God. It allows others to see us humbling ourselves and trusting to call, as we call on the name of God. Conversely, when prayer is only a private affair, others can't know to what degree our faith is actually placed in the hands of our Heavenly Father. They don't see our dependence, so they don't know how central it is to our faith, to whether we believe it or not. And so I would say that a healthy prayer witness, what it does is it reveals, a prayer witness reveals our deep trust and it shows our total dependence on God for the outcomes in our families and in our lives when we pray publicly. Years ago, I was in a mall in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. I was refereeing in the American Hockey League. I, I had a day off between games and I went to the mall to eat. And uh, as is custom, I ordered food. I was by myself. I traveled a lot by myself then. I ordered my food. I sat down in the food court and I prayed for my food. I just bowed my head by myself and prayed. I didn't make a big deal about it. And this lady came over about 15 minutes later with her son. And she said, hey, I just want to thank you for being an example to my son that you pray. We're a praying family. And we're, we're always, we always try to, to point out to our kids when we see other people in public spheres praying. And I went, whoa. I think that was the first time I prayed publicly in the mall and I don't know how long, but our public display of our dependence on God, he uses that when others can see it. Now, two sub points here briefly because there are some, some statements around this that Jesus makes concerning public prayer. In Matthew 6, 5, he warns his followers not to pray like the hypocrites. You remember the man who, who prayed, who stood up and he said, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men, that I'm not like this tax collector. I give all that I have. I fast twice a week. You know, he's talking about his own righteousness, right? And then the other man stands up and he says, forgive me, Lord, a sinner, right? And so Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't do what I call the loud and proud prayers, the big flashy words that draw attention to yourself. And so Jesus specifically addresses prideful arrogance and prideful public prayers in those who want to be seen as righteous, but he does not prohibit sincere public prayer. And that's because public prayer and corporate prayer that humbles the individuals and that comes before the Lord is pleasing to him. The second thing is this, it's, it's that not all of our prayers need to be public. 
Some things are better kept between us and the Lord or in a smaller circle, prayed about in confidence with God alone. Jesus instructed his followers. He said, make your requests known to God and then your heavenly father who knows what you truly need will give you what you truly need. And so he says, hey, pray your requests privately. And so private prayer that asks God, that sees him as the giver of all good things, that says, Lord, this, if it's your will, but then that trusts him and that accepts his answer of yes, no, maybe, or not yet is also pleasing to him. I wonder, are we taking opportunities that God gives us to pray with others? Frequently, I say to people, I'll pray for you. Less frequently, I say, hey, let's stop for a minute and let's pray. And so I wonder if those opportunities where you feel burdened to say, I'll pray for you, I wonder if those aren't opportunities to go the full measure and to say, hey, let's stop it for a minute and let's talk to God about this. Are we responding publicly by saying, let's pray, or are we keeping it private and saying, I'll pray for you? Some of you may feel motivated later today, whether it's at the end of the service, um, possibly later today, sometime this week. Some of you will no doubt feel the Holy Spirit pull on your heart and say, I want you to pray. I want you to pray for them, if nothing else, to encourage them, if nothing else, to be a witness for others to see that you really trust me. I would encourage you to do so, do so as a testimony of your dependence on God. The second consideration to help us kind of move prayer to the central part of our life is a little challenging because anybody who is virtually, um, who is at peace can be, can, can, can trust in prayer when, when life's waters are calm and the winds are in their favor, even me. Um, I'm at peace, I said that wrong. I, I can be at peace when the waters are calm, but I'm also less motivated to pray when the waters are calm. But our level of peace in the midst of trials is something to be considered. See, I think our level of peace in the face of adversity is like a barometer that reports the weather. It reports uh, our spiritual dependence, our level of spiritual dependence on, the God when, on God, when life's trials are pressing in, what does your barometer say? What is it gauging about your dependence on God? And so if what verse seven says is true, which it says here, the, the peace of God transcending our understanding, if that's true, that God's peace, when we pray, his peace transcends what we can understand about what we are facing, if that is true, I have to tell you this, if that's a new concept for you, if that's something that you have not yet seen or experienced or you're new to Christianity and you're still trying to figure this thing out, uh, I have to tell you this, it's no promise that your circumstances will change. It's not a promise that, that you will feel peace because God will amend the situation. It's no promise that your perceived needs will suddenly be met. That's not what God is saying. That's called prosperity theology and it's bogus. Name it, claim it. It's not true. It's not biblical. Some will tell you it is. It's not. Search the scriptures. We can't name and claim our prayers. Jesus said, ask anything of the Father and he will give you what you truly need because he knows what you truly need. Rather, this peace, what he's talking about here, this peace is a characteristic of God himself that becomes in the Christian, that, that manifests in the praying believer, in me, in you as we pray. This peace of God is a gift of himself to us that becomes in us. It's a state of tranquility. And it comes from this. Because we're assured of salvation, because the work of the cross is finished, because it is done, because Jesus was raised from the dead, because God has purchased our souls, then we have nothing to fear from God. 
right? We have nothing to fear from the Lord. And we're, we're, we remain content in our situation, even though we may not like it. Now that's hard, I know. And I haven't dealt with a lot of tragedy. I've had some in my life. I haven't dealt with a lot of tragedy, but even in the face of tragedy, we are content that God is still for us and we can trust him because God's peace excels beyond our knowledge and it surpasses our ability to comprehend and explain every situation and occurrence in life. I mean, let's be honest. There are, there are hard truths. One of the hard truths of faith is this. It's that our understanding of why God allows what he allows, it it's sometimes doesn't satisfy those who are seeking answers. It, it doesn't always appease the person who wants to know why this thing, why this time, why me. Our words of assurance and our explanations of God's purpose in all things, they're sometimes insufficient. Let's be, let's be real, let's be honest. We don't have all the answers, particularly when painful suffering seasons of life set in and where loss is concerned. But God promises this. He says that his peace is available even during the seasons of suffering and loss. And some of you know that well, too well. Some of you have been a testimony of that, of dealing with loss. Some of you are in the midst of dealing with loss now and you're doing it well. And I wonder if it's not God's peace transcending our understanding that allows you to do that. In fact, Paul Paul says this about peace. He uses a Greek word that means guards. He says that God's peace guards the uh, guards or meets the deepest needs of our hearts. It's a military term. It means to protect, to lay down your life, to form a barrier, to block out anything that would allow anxiety to set in. It's because it's all sufficient. God's peace is all sufficient, meaning that prayerful people are the most peaceful people. Horatio Spafford is the man I alluded to in my opening when I said God gave me a story. Horatio Spafford was an American lawyer. Um, he was a real estate mogul in Chicago in the 1860s. He was a close personal friend of D.L. Moody, the evangelist, if you know who that is. Spafford was married to his wife, Anna. They had uh, five children at the time. In 1871, they lost their two-year-old son to pneumonia. And... Uh, as well as most of their financial fortune later that year in the Great Chicago Fire. When real estate burns down, people who own real estate suffer heavily, and this is in pre-insurance days, and so he lost a uh, massive fortune. Two years later, he and his family had decided to set out to Europe. They were gonna go vacation in Europe for a time. They were still recovering emotionally, spiritually, financially, and so they planned to travel to Europe, but a lingering business deal that had sort of gone sideways for Spafford caused him to stay behind and to send his wife and his four girls on ahead of him, and he would join them at a later time once he figured out his business issue. Four days into their crossing of the Atlantic, they collided with a Scottish ship that uh, caused the two vessels to begin to sink. The Spafford women reportedly uh, gathered on the deck with the other passengers, and they, the four ladies and their mother, began to pray. They began to pray and ask God to spare them, to spare their lives if it was in his will. Sadly, the vessel sank and it killed, all, it killed 226 passengers of that ship. All 85 passengers on the other vessel were rescued. Mrs. Spafford was found floating on a piece of debris. Her four girls drowned. She was carried to Wales uh, with other survivors. And from there, she cabled her husband. Couldn't call him, obviously, back then. She cabled him. And he received a message from his wife in Wales that said, saved alone, what shall I do? 
Those six words probably don't capture the depth of pain, the emotional turmoil, the, the angst, the loss, the searing loss. They don't capture Spafford's reaction himself when he read them. We can't know what they felt. We can only imagine what they felt having lost five children now, all of their children at this stage in their lives. Spafford catches the next ship as soon as he can. He gets on a boat. He crosses the Atlantic. Four days into his journey, the captain, aware of his condition, calls Mr. Spafford to his sea cabin. He says, Mr. Spafford, we are now over the place where your family was lost. For the remainder of the voyage, Spafford penned numerous things, including the words to what would become the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. These are the lyrics. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, when peace comes, when sorrow comes, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, even so, even this, it is well with my soul. I trust you, Lord. That's what that says. The Spaffords later had three more children, a boy and two girls. One would hope that their suffering was over. One would hope that they could be a family and that they would, their, their, the, the parents would pass on before their children. Sadly, their boy, when he was four years old, uh, passed away in 1880 from scarlet fever. They lost six children in nine years. Their two girls did survive into adulthood. And yet, despite all of this loss, they, over, they overcame their trials and their suffering and they said faithfully, even though we suffer, it is well with our souls because God is for us. They knew that and they believed it and they lived it. Uh, will we, like the Spaffords, will we continue to lean into God when our circumstances and those of the people we love become the most difficult only if we pray, only if we pray. If we start to do things in our own power, if we start to look for the understanding and the explanations of others as opposed to laying our hearts bare before the Lord and saying, God, help me in this, then we won't be satisfied only if we pray. So are we praying through the difficult things in life? Are we seeking God? Are we relying on his wisdom and his strength rather than our own understanding? Are we persevering in the face of trial? Lastly, number three, prayer is this. Prayer is a spoken act of worship. Even George Patton's prayer was an act of worship because even Patton's irreverent prayer in his tone still ascribed to God, you are the Lord. You are the one who can change this. You are the, the God, our God Almighty. Only you can affect this. Our prayers are an act of worship. And God works through our words of worship as we seek him. He reassures us of his love. He covers us with his grace. And he reveals to us when we pray, he reveals to us his will. Nehemiah lived about 400 years before Jesus. And uh, he, was, he served as an official in the court of the Persian king. He was part of the exile. and He was the cupbearer to the king. Doesn't sound like a fancy job, but he was the one who ate all the king's food and drank all the king's wine before the king did. He had one of the highest offices actually in the court because if he died, the king died. And so the king literally trusted Nehemiah with his life. Nehemiah was Jewish by birth, and yet his, so his ancestral homeland was what is modern-day Israel, and yet he lived and he served and he worked in the court of King Artaxerxes, that's a name if you've ever heard one, uh, in what is modern-day Iran. When he heard that the walls of Jerusalem had been destroyed, an event which I would point out had happened 150 years prior to his hearing, history was slow in those days, it moved slowly, when he heard that the walls had come down and were in ruins, Nehemiah did this, he began to mourn. Jerusalem was 
the city of God. He began to mourn, he began to fast, he began to pray, and he talked to God. And this is how his story begins in Nehemiah chapter one, starting in verse four. He says this, when I heard these things, that the walls were broken down, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for, for your servants, the people of Israel. Long story short, right after this, shortly after this, Nehemiah goes to Artaxerxes and he seeks out permission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that safety and honor can be restored to that city. The king, no doubt moved by Nehemiah's faith and trust, grants permission he gives Nehemiah time off from work. He writes him letters guaranteeing safe passage through all the territories that he's gonna go through. He bestows upon him the king's authority. He actually makes him governor. So he's out now acting as the king's agent and he donates all of the construction supplies and the needed labor, including cutting down prized timber from his personal forest so that the walls could be built and the job finished well. What's my point in sharing the story? God had a calling on Nehemiah's life and he has a calling and he has a purpose, similarly, for each of his children, for you, for your kids, for mine, for me, for our lives. But Nehemiah might never have found nor fulfilled his calling if he didn't seek first the Lord in prayer. Remember he said, when he heard the news, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed because he wanted to discern what it was the Lord wanted him to accomplish. What he felt, God didn't want him to feel just for the sake of feeling. What he felt, God wanted to work through and use. Think about it for a minute. He had to search out what it was that God was calling him to. And he had to seek out what it was the Lord was requiring of him. He didn't wait idly, wondering who's gonna fix the walls. He prayed, he listened, and he acted. I believe that what helped Nehemiah Find and follow God's next step for him is the same thing that's available to you and me. You hear us use that language around here. Find and follow your next step. It's not a passive activity. We, we pray, we seek God. Lord, what is it you would have me do at this season in my life? How would I use my financial resources? How can my family serve you? What are you calling me to do? See, I believe that that connection between, uh, that exists between God who knows and sees all things, as scripture says, the connection between him who knows and sees all things and those of us here who we only know and see what's in front of us, the connection is prayer. We can't see and know what God knows. We don't know where and why he's leading us, and so we pray. We seek him. When we do, when we seek him in prayer, we find our next step. Maybe it's just for today. Maybe it's not the big picture. Maybe, I doubt that God, possibly, like never say I doubt God, right? But I've never experienced in my life where God rolled out the scroll and the map and the plan for my life. Never but he has confirmed many next steps for me. He has given me convictions about things in life when I've sought him in prayer. When we seek him, we'll find him. When we follow him in the urging of his Holy Spirit, then we will live out his plan and his calling for our lives. Are we praying? Are we listening? Are we obeying? In my utmost for his highest, the Scottish evangelist Oswald Chambers, who died quite young, he shared this about prayer. He said, it is not part of the life of a natural person to pray. It's not a natural act. It says, we hear it said that one will suffer in life if they do not pray. I question it. What will suffer 
is the life of the Son of God in them, which is nourished not by food. The life of the Son of God in them is nourished by prayer. When a person is born from above, the life of the Son of God is born in them, and they can either starve or nourish that life. Prayer, he says, is the way the life of God is nourished. Prayer is the mechanism by which you and I personally and corporately connect to our Heavenly Father. It's a gift he's given us. And as we seek to live out what Chambers calls a spiritually nurtured life, it shows our lost brothers and sisters, our lost friends, and it shows our brothers and sisters in Christ that our dependence is on him alone. You, you know you need to be encouraged by your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? You know it encourages you, it blesses you when you see them pray. It also challenges a lost world when they see us trust the Lord. And then we find our peace from God alone. I know you, I left you wondering, I know you know how World War II ended, but uh, I left you hanging as to how things turned out for Patton's Third Army in December of 1944, just so the curious among you don't have to go home and Google it. Uh, I will tell you that the bad weather did turn and that very, very shortly thereafter, the battle turned in the favor of, of Patton's troops. And we can't know for sure whether it was a direct result of his hostile prayer at that time in that church, but we do know this, that on the 27th of December, the general returned to the same church, again, alone, his aide took him, he went inside to pray, and he prayed this, sir, this is Patton again, and I beg to report complete progress. Sir, it seems that you've been much better informed about the situation than I, because the awful weather I cursed so much has caused the German army to commit suicide, that, sir, was a brilliant military move, and I humbly bow in your presence. Amen. Amen. God is for us, right? Talk to him this week. Let me close in prayer and our worship team will join us on the stage. Lord, we do pause today to praise you for all of the blessings in our lives. We praise you for the weather today. We praise you for this gathering of your people. We praise you for the children in our midst, for the new marriages, the families you've blessed us with. We praise you for the gray-headed wise individuals that you have blessed our church with. We praise you for the leadership in this church. We praise you, God, for how you continue to speak and to move in the hearts and the lives of men and women and children. And God, we want to exalt you and honor you in all things. And so, Lord, today I pray that for those of us who our prayer life is sometimes a little tenuous, a little less than regular, Lord, I pray you would speak to us, that you would draw us to yourself. God, that we would press into you, that we would know that we're coming to the throne of the one who loves us, who resurrected Christ from the dead on our behalf, that we would know you for eternity. And so God, we come. We come with open hands, open hearts, trusting, knowing, believing that you have a plan for our lives, that you are leading even now, and that there are next steps for us to grow in our faith. It's not good enough to stay where we're at, Lord. We trust you, we love you, but you're calling us to walk in more trust and deeper love day by day. And so we wanna do that. In the next moments, God, I pray in these worship lyrics that you would draw our hearts to you, that we would sing praise to you, that our heart's mind, our, our heart's attention would be on you. God, that we would direct our affections only to you. And we pray in the holy, the powerful, and the set-apart name of Jesus. Amen.